Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them now to, um, to Romans chapter 5. And you um, will read the first couple of three verses of Romans 5. We're not going to get real far tonight. Thank you. I, that, that helps a lot to aging eyes. Uh, begin at verse 1 with me, and um, let's, read, um, let's read the first two verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We won't get that far uh, tonight uh, because I want to go back up, back to verse 1 and kind of wrap up some loose ends that I left uh, from our two weeks ago. Of course, last week we were all so gripped and still continue to be with what's going on in our country and, uh, and you know as well as I the, the needs of prayer that exists. So we didn't meet last week at least around Romans 5. So we come back two weeks later and I want to wrap up some things that I wasn't able to say concerning verse 1 uh, of Romans chapter 5. So um, as I said then, just to kind of remind you, um, what you have Paul doing is giving us some of the results of justification by faith. Uh, he mentions three. We uh, covered one two weeks ago. That those who have been justified by faith, number one, have peace with God. And then there are two others that he lists in verse 2 that we'll get to uh, in the coming weeks. But tonight I, I want to go back and talk about this this item of peace, because it's, um, it leaves a bit of room for some unfortunate misunderstanding, I'm afraid. Um, what I tried to tell you uh, two weeks ago is that the peace that is in view here is an objective peace, not a subjective peace. There is a difference between peace with God and the peace of God. And what is, uh, what is in view here is not the peace of God, but peace with God, uh, uh, an, obje an objective peace, whether I feel it or not, it is mine having been justified by faith. I am no longer at war with God. The enmity is over. I have ceased to be an enemy. I have become a son and a daughter or a daughter. Um, there is peace that has been established between the God that was offended by my sin and that has all been wrought, of course, through the mediatorial role, mediatorial role of Jesus Christ. So what I want to go back and fix on is this peace thing because um, having said that much, I'm afraid it then opens the door for some unfortunate conclusions to which people may come. Um, by that I mean this. Um, there is such a thing, ladies and gentlemen, as false peace. There is a peace that is ours, having been justified by faith. But there are people who have peace and shouldn't have it. Um, I've got two things that I, I'm afraid are going to be somewhat new concepts to you. Maybe this is one of them. But uh, if you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to see just really one uh, verse of Scripture out of, uh, of all places, the book of wisdom. Proverbs 30, where... Uh, uh, the author of the book of Proverbs um, says in verse 12, uh, 
he says, he states this, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. There are those ladies and gentlemen who uh, have concluded that all is well with their souls and they have this marvelous peace who shouldn't have concluded that and have no right to think that peace exists. Of course, the, the, the text that is so uh, searching or so revelatory in this regard is the passage in Matthew chapter 7 when, where Jesus talks about there are men who will say, many to many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And, and, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Those are a, there, there's an illustration there of people who have peace who ought not have it. Um, one of the passages that I love to allude to or, or point to is, is my old buddy Jeremiah. If you've ever been to my home, uh, I have a, uh, a Rembrandt print of Jeremiah. He's one of my favorites. And in fact, um, that print that is in my home is mentioned in a book uh, authored by R.C. Sproul. Uh, R.C. was in my office one day at, um, in Ocala, and that, that print was hanging in my office and uh, he remarked, where did you get this? And I told him, and he said, this is the classic expression of Christian art. And he, uh, he uh, makes reference to that painting uh, in, in one of his books called Lifelines or Lifetimes or something like that. But anyway, um, Jeremiah, who is this prophet that paid so deeply and such a high price to proclaim the truth. Nobody paid the price as, as high as did uh, Jeremiah. In fact, uh, at one point he said... Uh, the price is too high. I, I gotta quit. In chapter twenty, he says, I, "I, you know, this is just too hard," and and tries to quit and eventually doesn't. But, but Jeremiah is the one who says on a couple of occasions, I think three occasions in his book, where he talks about the prophets of Israel, and he and he describes them as 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 men who have gone abroad and said to the children of Israel certain things that he shouldn't have said, that they shouldn't have said. And as a result, he says, says Jeremiah, you have healed the wound of my daughter slightly because you have said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What could be worse, ladies and gentlemen? What could be worse than to be a at, at an instrument of spreading peace to people who shouldn't have it. What could be worse? And yet, out of the mouth of our own Savior, he said the people who possess that kind of false peace are described as being many, many of them, who have a peace that, that would not be this objective peace that we're describing here, but they would have a subjective sense that all is well, when in fact they had no right to it. Now, what I want to do, uh, there's a couple of things I want to do tonight, but to just take this subject two places. But what I would like to do is give you some characteristics of those who, I think, possess a false peace. Men who have peace shouldn't have it, and here's what they look like. That is, those who have a false peace, they would, they would be de described by one of these five characteristics. Um, number one, 
they would be a people, or this, 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 this posture of false peace is the result from thinking that faith simply means believing. The people with false peace are those who have concluded that faith is nothing more than believing, some kind of intellectual assent to a set of um, historical facts. It's the whole argument, ladies and gentlemen, that is contained in the book of James chapter 2. That James is describing a people who, um, who, who plead faith, but have a faith that is not one that will land them on Canaan's shore. It is not a saving faith. They have concluded that faith goes no further than an intellectual ascent to some historical facts. And ladies and gentlemen, all along in, in, in theological circles, and you've heard this argument before, I'm, I'm sure, at least I hope you have. Uh, I hope I'm boring you to tears with this argument that I'm about to put up here. But that saving faith is, is something that is comprised of three component parts. There is uh, the, the whole idea of knowledge or a census. That um, before saving faith can ever be exercised, certain, you must be in possession of certain facts. Uh, the claims of Jesus Christ as to deity, the claims of Jesus Christ as to his redeemerhood and the role that he's playing. You know, the, that's, that's a component part. The other would, would be a certain assents, assensus is the Latin term. That is, that I know those facts and I believe that those facts are true. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I'm describing right now that those with false peace come to that point and stop. And because they believe um, that the facts are true, because they know the facts and believe that those facts are true, they have concluded that all is well, when in fact, ladies and gentlemen, they are in possession of false peace. What they have is not the real thing, because the third component part, of course, is, um, it's, people use a lot of different words, but uh, trust kind of flinging yourselves spread eagle onto these facts um, that we now believe is true. But gang, there are multitudes who have come to this, to this place and have stopped and are now residing safely in some lounging chair thinking that all is well when in fact it is not false peace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's, that's one characteristic of those in possession of false peace. Secondly, this is one that I have just hammered um, so, for so long back in the, the, uh, the winter and the spring. It's, um, it's a term that I, I may be new to you, um, fetism, that it's a faith in faith. People who have um, False peace can often be characterized as people who have faith in faith. If you ask them why they, are, they feel that their soul is safe, they will tell you, because of my faith. It's a faith in faith instead of a faith in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not your faith that saves. It is the finished and accomplished, completed work of Jesus Christ that saves completely apart and outside of us. And so just to be in the possession of faith 
is not going to land you in heaven. That's a faith in faith. And those who uh, particularly... This is really an opinion of mine, and I, I, I certainly can't prove it. But it seems like so much of this goes on in the South. That people have heard just, you got to believe. And so, okay, I believe, and therefore conclude all is well when in fact it is not all well. A third characteristic, and, and this is something that you might be surprised over, ladies and gentlemen, but people with false peace are never troubled, never troubled by doubts. What I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that the counterfeit is always too wonderful. And consequently, people with false peace never, never give it thought enough to ever doubt anything. There's never, there's, there never seems to be any hiccup in their walk with Christ. Because, you know, I, I, I did what they, the preacher told me to do, and therefore I'm never going to examine it again. They are never troubled by any sense of doubt, ladies and gentlemen. You know, um, what, what I'm suggesting is that false peace is too glib. It's too lighthearted. Um, there has been it, uh, kind of a stepchild of evangelicalism, uh, a whole movement of what, what has been called by others besides myself, is indecisionism. Just get somebody to nod their head in the direction of Jesus and everything is fine. And, um, and, and that might be a, an, an able presentation of the gospel. And it might be nothing more than utter decisionism, ladies and gentlemen. You know, um, <clears throat> think of this. I mean, when, when, I, when I think of evangelicalism in its, in its most popular form today, compare that, compare that to Acts chapter 5. When Ananias and Sapphira came in and lied to uh, Peter about the sale of a piece of land. And you know what happened to them when they, when they did that, don't you? It cost them both their lives. And so what is it that got around the, the city about the church there that Peter was leading? Why don't we all just rush on over there? No, 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 no. The, the, the word that got out is don't... don't don't step one foot in that place unless you're serious. Don't, don't get involved with those people, because if you get involved with that bunch, if you're not serious, it's going to perhaps cost you your life. Because you do hear about Ananias and Sapphira. But what do we have today? We've got a church that welcomes Ananias and Sapphira, and Ananias and Sapphira are filling our pews. We have no sense of sobriety, no sense of penitence, no sense of grief over sin, but they sure are enjoying a church. Those with false peace, ladies and gentlemen, often have a glib, kind of light-hearted approach to it. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, anybody that gives two hoots and a holler about this book and studies it with anything other than a desire to get a good grade in a religion course at the university, if you study it with any more serious than that, you will not be able to walk away from it with a sense of... <laughs> no, you will not. Never. Is there great joy to be found? Absolutely. Is there great encouragement? Is there great comfort? Yes. 
ladies and gentlemen, the, the mandates and precepts of this book grab a hold of the heart and life and soul of a man and shake it to the core. But false peace, you never see any of that sense of biblical sobriety because it's holding on to something that's not real. Fourthly, um, I think those who may be in possession of false peace are folks that are only interested in forgiveness and not in righteousness. They want the fluff. They want, they want that with... Not, right, excuse me, forgiveness is certainly not fluff. But, but they want all that is offered uh, to, to those who embrace the gospel. But in terms of, I want to be so aligned with the Savior that has saved me, that is not what they signed on for. They're interested in the forgiveness that comes, but the righteousness and the righteous lifestyle that comes along with it, ladies and gentlemen, is um, not something that's all that interesting. And then finally, um, one of the things that I think is so true about those with false peace is that they take sin uh, so lightly. Um, we toy with it. Uh, sin is not something that grieves and wounds the Heavenly Father. It is something that, you know, I'm all sinners. I'm not perfect. You know, and I, I, I hear this Gary Condit interview and, and I hear him write off all which has been reported as fact under the heading of, well, we're all not, none of us are perfect. God made some mistakes. Well, there's a certain truth to that, isn't there? I mean, I, we're, none of us are perfect. We've all made mistakes. But has sin ever gripped us? Has sin become the thing that is the enemy of our souls? Um, or do we toy with it? Let me give you just a little example that I told my a group about just recently. And, and I really hate to pick on this one um, because uh, there ain't a person in this room, including the guy standing in front of you, that's not guilty. Um, but we believe the Bible, don't we? We believe we are people that say this is the uh, inherent word of God and, uh, and we glory in that and love it that we have a book from God in our hands. And there's a, there's a chapter in this letter of Paul um, in Romans chapter 13 that talks about obedience to the civil government. Um, you know, that we are called as Christians to obey the civil government. Uh, you know that? And one of the questions that has come up uh, after this most recent tragedy is, is um, should, can the Christians support some kind of national response to the perpetrators of this crime? Well, of course we can, ladies and gentlemen. But we cannot support taking up the sword in our own hands because the sword lies in the hands of the civil government. But the sword does lie there, and we can support um, our country and our if, if, when the civil government. But you can't throw a brick through a mosque. But but uh, we believe that we're supposed to, you know, obey the civil government. Now tell me this: Don't please don't lift your hands. Please don't lift your hands. <laughs> please. How many of you are have cars waiting you in the church parking lot right now that have fuzz busters in them? Don't please don't lift your hands. Please don't. Please don't raise your hands. Those things which allow for us to do our best to get away with violations of the civil government. And you know what we do? We laugh about it. 
Well, I mean, surely, I mean, there isn't anybody without blood on their hands when it comes to violating speed laws. But, but you see, the, the, the point is, is sin something that we take seriously as the people of God and want as best we know how to avoid it? No, we go to Walmart and buy a buzz buster so we can send some more and get away with it. And every time we get away with it, we consider ourselves wise. Now, ladies and gentlemen, now sin is uh, that which took our Savior to the cross, and it's supposed to be something that we take seriously, but often you find those with, um, with false peace uh, take sin, oh, way too lightly. Now, that's one of the, the kind of the branches of this, uh, this river that flowed out of this word peace. There's another one that I want to take you down that, that, that um, I hope you'll believe me. My, my motive in taking you down this little road here is for your ultimate, um, uh, is an ultimate pastoral concern that I have for you. But in the beginning, it's not going to feel like that. So, but stay with me because I, um, I want you to go, I want you to arrive at something that really is peace. But, now, let me, let me make it clear. The first branch that I took you down is this idea of false peace. And I gave you five characteristics of what I consider people in possession of false peace. Now, that's done. Now I'm going to take you down to something else that has to do with, with us. And um, one of the things that I said um, two weeks ago is that because of what Christ has done for his people, because we are justified by faith alone, we have peace with God whether we feel it or not. It's an objective peace. My friend, if you are seated here tonight, uh, having embraced what Christ has done at Calvary's cross, and you do not have peace, it's okay. <laughs> now, because the peace that is in view in, in Romans 5.1 is an objective peace accomplished by what Jesus has done for us. Okay. Now, when I said just a second ago that it's okay, it's okay in one sense, but it's not okay in another. It's okay in the sense that do you understand that real faith from time to time has to fight to maintain itself. That is, if I am going to be in a possession of this peace of God where there is a certain serenity to my soul that my standing with God is something that is safe and certain and sure, there are going to be times that you're going to have to fight to maintain that. And what I want you to see is why I say that. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Hebrews. And I want to show you something that I bet that not many have seen much of. Um, Hebrews chapter 6. We'll start there and we'll go to chapter 10. And then we're going to go to Colossians 2. And then we're going to compare that with one verse in 1 Thessalonians. So bear with me. I'm in, I'm in Hebrews chapter 6. And I want to read you verse 11. Are you there? Hebrews 6.11 And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the 
full assurance of hope until the end. Now, do you see what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying? We want you, we desire that each of you do, uh, do X, Y, Z or something. I mean, he's, he's pleading for something that would ultimately arrive at full, full assurance, which suggests and implies what? That this admonition on the part of the author of the Hebrews, who we don't, which we don't know who wrote it, but his concern is that each individual believer ultimately arrive at full, full assurance. Not half, not three quarters, but full. Look at chapter 10 with me. The same thing you'll, you'll find in verse, beginning at 19, I want to read you through verse 22. Uh, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way by which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because you see, there is the possibility that you might draw near to Jesus without full assurance. And that doesn't mean that shouldn't stop you from drawing near, but his desire is that you be able to draw near in full assurance. One other, Colossians chapter 2. Same statement, maybe I shouldn't bore you with turning to it, but I just want you to see that a third time um, we find this same language in Colossians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, where you see... Um, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. So, ladies and gentlemen, there seems to be uh, something that all of us desire to possess, or at least the possible desires for us to possess, and that is full assurance. Now, that wouldn't be so vital unless you compare it with this statement. If you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm reading from verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much. Much assurance. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, the word assurance appears seven times in the entire Bible. I have just read you four of those times. Two of those times that the word assurance appears has nothing to do with one's assurance of salvation. And the other time I read to you two weeks ago, the, other, the seventh place it appears is in Isaiah chapter 32. And in four of these five times that it has something to do with the issue of assurance, you get a distinction of full assurance, and here you get it contrasted to, I think, much assurance. What I'm suggesting to you is that some in the body of Christ are right now, this moment, in possession of full assurance. And I'm also suggesting that some of you are in possession of much assurance. When the desire of the Bible is to see you have full assurance, now, guys, before I try to remedy this whole thing, I wanted to read you something so that this is a, probably the second book I ever read as a Christian. It's by J.C. Ryle, who died uh, 
Oh, in the late 1800s, he was an Anglican bishop. And uh, if you can get your hands on anything that Ryle wrote, you want to read it. But I want to I read you just a couple of things, uh, actually two paragraphs, out of a chapter of his on assurance. Listen, there are two brief chapters of uh, paragraphs. Um, it, this is Roman numeral two. A believer may never arrive at this assured hope which Paul expresses and, and yet be saved. Uh, hang with me, you'll, you'll get clear. I grant this most freely. I do not dispute it for a moment. I would not desire to make one contrite heart sad that God has not made sad, or to discourage one fainting child of God, or to leave the impression that men have no part or lot in Christ except they feel assurance. Now, my point, well, the reason I read you that paragraph is I don't want to make any uh, soul sad or discourage one fainting child of God either. And I don't want you to be out there sad and, and fainting. Now listen. A person may have saving faith in Christ and yet never enjoy an assured hope, such as the Apostle Paul enjoyed. To believe and have a glimmering hope of acceptance is one thing. To have joy and peace in our believing and abound in hope is quite another. All God's children have faith. Not all have assurance. I, have this ought, I think this ought never to be forgotten. Now, the reason I, I want you to know that too because I think so many of the household of faith struggle over this issue of assurance. And you've got to, make the, you've got to see a line of demarcation between those two things. Um, all have faith, but not all have assurance. Now, this whole chapter, which is very excellent on assurance, he concludes with about 30 pages of quotes from people on this subject. I mean, this, you see, this, this is notes. I just want to read you a couple of them. Just a couple of footnotes about this whole issue. None, says Bishop Hopkins, whoever he is, none have assurance at all times. As in a walk that is shaded with trees and checkered with light and shadow, some tracks and paths in it are dark and others are sunshine. Such is usually the life of the most assured Christians. My brother and sister in Christ, I am saying to you that there are times that those of you who possess full assurance will go through periods of darkness where it will be minimized. I have no text to prove what I'm about to say, but I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, there are times when I think the Holy Spirit, for His own reason, snatches it from you. So that we who value these things so deeply will long for those things to return. Because we believe them and we love them. And yet, in His, in His work of sanctifying us all, He snatches it from us for a season so that we might be eager to have it returned. Let me read you um, just one other, and then I'll comment on the finish. Um, this man, his name is uh, Stephen Charnock. Does anybody know the name Stephen Charnock? The only volumes available that are good on the first person of the... Well, not the only volume, but the work on God the Father that is available in Christian literature around the world is by Stephen Charnock. It was written about a hundred years ago. Well, Stephen Charnock says, A want, or a lack, a want of assurance is not unbelief. Did you get that, my brother and sister in Christ? I want you to get that. If you have struggled in this area, it does not necessarily mean 
you are guilty of unbelief. One other. Assurance is not essential to the being of faith. It is a strong faith, but we read likewise of a weak faith, little faith, faith like a grain of a mustard seed. True saving faith in Jesus Christ is only distinguishable by, distinguishable by its different degrees. But in every degree and in every subject, it is universally of the same kind. That is, faith saves. But degrees of assurance may vary from person to person. But the admonition of the New Testament is that we might arrive at full assurance. I want to make one observation to tell you how you might come there, and then I'm finished. Do I have time? Um, just one, I hope, profitable insight for you, ladies and gentlemen, that I think is what robs us of full assurance. I told you the story again and again uh, um, that, um, gosh, 19, 1984, 1984, um, R.C. Sproul invited Susie and I down for have supper in his, uh, in his home, and so we were having supper with R.C. and Vesta, and, and um, uh, I don't know where Susie was, she was in the kitchen with Vesta or something, but I was in the living room with um, uh, R.C., just the two of us, and I was saying I was struggling with this assurance thing, and he looked at me, and he said, you, now I have been in the ministry for nine years, he said, you do not understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, brethren, that, I think, is our problem. We do not yet fully enjoy the certainty and provisions and confidence that we might enjoy because we do not understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, to wit, to illustrate, here's what we do, I think. Why is it that we go through those bouts where we are so alarmed at our soul's condition? Here's what I think we're doing. What we're doing is we say, well, we know that you're supposed to believe in Christ to be saved. But is my faith good enough? I know that it says that I'm to repent of my sin when I come to Christ. But is my repentance of such a quality that it will allow me to have confidence that I am His? Ladies and gentlemen, that is a fool's errand. Forget the quality of your faith. Forget the quality of your repentance. I'm here to tell you, they're all flawed. We're all got... Nobody brought up perfect faith. Nobody brought perfect repentance to Jesus. What we are guilty of is we constantly fix our attention on how we have done. When the attention of our, and examination of our souls should rest not on the inside of us, but on the outside and what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Ladies and gentlemen, once we understand the beauty and fullness and richness of what Jesus accomplished, eternal, this eternal life that is ours because of what He did, justification by faith gives us full, rich, enjoyable, life-giving
ladies and gentlemen. Fix your eyes on the beautiful Savior. Our Father, might we all take heed. Might we all find ourselves attaching our focus to Christ and His beauty and His work. Might that be the thing that compels us and consumes us. Father, we've all got flawed faith. We've all got flawed repentance. We've all got flawed love. We've all got flawed service. We've all got flawed humility. It's all flawed. But the work of Jesus Christ is perfect. We lay hold of that all over again. It is our joy and our delight to do so. Might your people be able to leave this place having heard the admonition of the of the Apostle Paul that we might approach Jesus arriving at his throne of grace in full assurance. Thank you, O oh God, for establishing peace between a sinner like myself and a holy God like yourself, all because of the mediatorial role of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.